You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The sixth annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland interdisciplinary conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit tudorstuartireland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Jason McElligot from Marsh's Library. His paper was entitled Early Modern Female Book Owners, The Evidence from Ireland's First Public Library. Until relatively recently, if you were reading Irish historiography in particular, but also uh, Irish uh, literary scholars, you would have been forgiven for assuming that there were no women in early modern Ireland. Uh, Now, that's changed over the past decade, uh, and uh, pioneering work in an Irish context by scholars, uh, some of whom are in this uh, room now, means that we know much more about women writers. And also, events like this event, which bring... Uh, graduate students and scholars from history uh, and uh, literary studies together, I think, have, have played a part in that uh, reassessment. Yet, or, uh, and even that willingness to think about things in, uh, in new ways outside our disciplinary uh, boxes. Uh, yet we still know uh, comparatively little uh, about women as readers uh, in Ireland. We know uh, much more, I think, about them as, as writers, uh, but not so much about them uh, as readers. And recent work by uh, Amy Prendergast on the literary salon in 18th century Britain and Ireland shows what can be done when we have the relevant sources, personal correspondence, family uh, papers, private diaries, as well as original literary texts. Yet for the earlier centuries, such sources are very sparse uh, indeed. And what I want to talk about today is one potentially uh, quite interesting, it's quite fraught as well, as source Uh, that could be used, uh, which hasn't been used in any systematic fashion so far in an Irish context, and that's ownership marks uh, within books. Now, books and manuscripts could be precious objects in both a financial and a cultural sense. They could have sentimental value in terms of personal and family connections, or they could be important elements of the owner's uh, religious uh, or political sense of themselves. And as a result of the range of ways in which uh, books and manuscripts could be valuable, uh, owners often inscribe their names and other personal details uh, into texts uh, that they owned. Uh, Marsh's Library, my institution, aims to be the the first uh, rare books library in the world to provide detailed provenance and ownership evidence for every single item in its collection. And in doing so, I'm particularly interested in logging every instance uh, in which a female name appears. Now, the library has a relatively small collection of about 20,000 early modern books, but the task isn't as easy uh, as it might uh, initially seem. You see, the process of uh, searching each individual book and pamphlet for handwritten marks of ownership is slow uh, and labour-intensive for the researchers, but also for the poor library staff as well. Uh, Now, it's possible to circumvent those research problems Uh, as I have done if you happen to have your own rare books library uh, and if you're able to allocate staff to work on the project. Uh, But the cost uh, involved in terms of staff hours uh, does go a long way towards explaining why, as a rule, provenance records are so patchy uh, across early modern 
uh, libraries of the early modern period, even those with very strong uh, uh, research uh, uh, focuses. Uh, the costs help to explain, as I, as I mentioned to an academic who came looking at provenance, uh, looking at French provenance, I explained to uh, an academic that the cost was why they were about as welcome uh, as an amateur genealogist from the United States looking for a relative called Murphy. Um, <laughs> they were just going to be so much trouble. Uh, but even uh, when we begin to work in the book stacks, we're faced with a series of interlocking methodological problems. I won't go through all of these, but the most serious of these is the fact that not all women or men who owned books would have signed their names in them. Uh, and another one, obviously, is that even if you signed your name in a book and it was repaired or, or re repaired and rebacked at some point in the 19th century, names could often be uh, accidentally removed from the books. Yet despite all the problems with the methodology, which I'm happy uh, to discuss, it does offer the possibility of glimpsing a stratum of society uh, or a number of strata of society who weren't traditionally uh, addressed by historians and literary scholars, those who didn't leave uh, distinct sets of historical records uh, or literary uh, manuscripts. Now, a systematic uh, study of provenance uh, in the library, provenance information in the library, uh, should provide uh, much new evidence for the breadth of uh, book ownership in early modern uh, Ireland and Britain. And uh, I suppose I should hear, say here that we're really talking about Britain and Ireland because in a sense when you're talking about book culture uh, and print culture, there is no such thing as early modern Ireland because early modern Ireland does not exist uh, in isolation. It's only part of a wider uh, culture which is both European but also British uh, as well. So that study will suggest patterns of ownership, purchases, borrowings uh, and bequests. Uh, and the extension of that study uh, in this small and, let's face it, relatively unimportant library uh, to other rare books libraries could also contribute to the creation of a data set of statistical significance which could shed light on how collections of books owned by women uh, and men have been constituted and dispersed across the centuries. And really working on this uh, over the past few months I've been uh, constantly aware of the fact that the accumulation of random data, factoids, uh, as a scientist friend of mine uh, calls them, factoids, uh, could be uh, about as useful as the antiquarian researches of an Edwardian gentleman. All very interesting to the individual who does the work, uh, but in the grand scheme of things, where does it fit, unless we scale up and link uh, with other institutions? So Marsh's Library is currently about 20% of the way through the overall collection for evidence of provenance, and as well as dozens upon dozens of male names, we've identified over 70 female names in nearly 50, 50 different uh, books and pamphlets. We still have 80% of the way uh, to go, but we've discovered uh, over 70 female names in uh, 50 different books and pamphlets. It's at a relatively early stage of research, but it's possible to make a number uh, of observations. It's become clear, for example, that sometimes the presence of a woman's name written into a book does not signify her ownership uh, of the item. So, for example, this uh, item uh, shows in very distinct letters there the name of Lydia Meeston, uh, written into large, uh, thick letters on the flyleaf of a copy of a 1654 pamphlet, a discourse touching the Spanish monarchy. Yet, uh, other marks on the page suggest that her name may have been written by uh, a certain Henry James. And the most frustrating thing about many of these 
sources is that the context, meaning and significance of the inscription uh, is lost to history. It was probably not written by her, her name, uh, it was written by somebody else, but the context of why uh, seems to be completely lost. There are, however, a number of books which can be attributed to a named, identifiable woman at a particular time and place. So, for example, a thick folio volume of anti-papal texts has the name and armorial stamps, if you can see it there, on the front and back uh, of a certain Eleanor Beeston uh, on the front and back boards of the book. Now, it's not unknown for women to have their own armorial stamps with their names and crests on books. But it is unusual and noteworthy, and it suggests uh, a much bigger library uh, sitting uh, undiscovered somewhere, or uh, a bigger library which has been destroyed uh, in the intervening period, uh, apart from this one uh, example. This woman was probably the Lady Eleanor Beeston, who married Sir Thomas Rowe, MP, in 1614. Another example might be (coughs) that of Grace Marsh, her book, 1689, which is written into the front of a volume of two separate works from the 1610s. Now, Grace is best known as the niece of the Archbishop Marsh, uh, who caused them much vexation by running away to get married in a tavern uh, in Castle Knock. Uh, <coughs> the Jane Westmeath, whose name appears in a 17th-century hand in a rare incunable, was probably the wife of the first uh, Earl of Westmeath. Yet it's frustrating, I think, Uh, even in this context, to be referring to women primarily in terms of their relationship to male uh, members of their family. The vast majority of the women uh, whose names we find will be hard to trace, no matter how elevated their social standing or how broad uh, their networks uh, of friendship and kinship during their lives. So, for example, the last page of the single surviving copy of this work, The Gospels of uh, Nicodemus from 1507, has... Uh, and it's a bit small to see it there, but down on the right, uh, the 16th century inscription of Mistress Frances Saunders. It's unclear who she was uh, and where this uh, unusual book might have been between the time she inscribed her name in it in the early 16th century and it coming into the library. <coughs> now, on occasion, it's possible to glean a fleeting glance of a woman's life from the inscriptions in her book uh, or books. Uh, For example, a copy of Matthew Henry's The Communicant's Companion of 1716 was owned by a Margaret Edwards who signed her name on the title page. Yet in the same hand, there's also an inscription which reads, Margaret Stewart, her book, Anno Domini 1723. That probably reflects Margaret's change of surname after her marriage, and it suggests that she still has a very clear sense of her own property uh, and transferring that property uh, into her new uh, married status. So there are lots of those incidental details, and often the context can be hard to read. There are, thankfully, uh, four female owners for whom we have more than unique surviving uh, copies. And we're still dealing with small numbers of books, certainly when compared with the size of surviving male collections. But the copies do hint at a broader uh, and deeper female ownership of print than might otherwise have been suspected. And really recent work by Kate Loveman in the context of Restoration England has shown what can be done with small numbers of books. So she gives us great insights into Elizabeth Pepys, the the very unknown wife of the very well-known Samuel Pepys, from only five books found among her husband's collection of 3,500 titles. 
We have four people for the purposes of the last half of this uh, talk. I'm only going to talk about two people in particular. The first is Elizabeth Stillingfleet, a woman, and I'm conscious as I was rehearsing this, that again, I keep referring to these women uh, in terms of their relationship to their male, uh, uh, their male uh, husbands. Uh, but Elizabeth Stillingfleet was the wife of Bishop Edward Stillingfleet. And there are eight items surviving within her husband's collection of 10,000 books which bear her name. Now, Elizabeth's books include uh, unremarkable works of standard contemporary Anglican religiosity and practical divinity. You'll all know exactly the type of book that I'm uh, talking about. They survive in multitudes and stacks, and you could weigh them uh, in every research uh, library uh, in the world. Yet two of her otherwise unexceptional religious books are interesting for the ways in which the ownership inscriptions within them can shed light on Elizabeth's social networks. Her copy of Henry Moore's uh, Discourses on Several Texts of Scripture from 1692 records Elizabeth Stillingfleet, her book, given her by the most excellent Mrs. Barclay. Now, Mrs. Barclay was probably Elizabeth Barclay Burnett, the second wife of the prominent Anglican clergyman Gilbert Burnett. Edward Stillingfleet and Gilbert Burnett <coughs> were very close friends, and the existence of some form of personal link between their two wives is intriguing, not least for the way in which it seems to have been iterated or reiterated by the gift of a book as a token of friendship and esteem. Similarly, and this relates to the uh, image on the screen behind me, uh, Elizabeth's copy of Anthony Hornick's The Happy Ascetic of 1681 contains the inscription, and you can see it there, Elizabeth Stillingfleet, hers, given me by my cousin Mortlock. And this is presumably the Henry Mortlock, whose name appears on the title page uh, as the publisher of the book. Here, a book has been used as a gift, this time between cousins, uh, but it may also have a wider meaning in terms of uh, of the social circles in which Elizabeth and her husband moved uh, because uh, Mortlock published uh, the vast majority of Edward Stillingfleet's uh, texts. But Elizabeth also owned some altogether more intriguing and intellectually stimulating items. She had Samuel Parker's 1666 polemic against the works of the early Christian writer Oregon, uh, who died in 254 AD. Now, Oregon uh, had argued that God created souls before he created the world and that these souls had become, according to their degree of devotion to and love for God, devils, humans, or angels. And Jesus Christ was, in Oregon's view, uh, a pre-existing soul who'd remained utterly loyal and devoted to God. He wasn't the son of man, he was just a loyal soul. Now, it need hardly be said that this heterodox theology was anathema to the churches by law established. And it's intriguing that Elizabeth owned this sort of arcane theological dispute. It's also surprising that Elizabeth owned Thomas Brown's attack on Spinoza and Hobbes entitled Miracle Works, Contrary and Above Nature. Elizabeth's husband, the bishop, owned copies of works by Spinoza and Hobbes and he engaged in polemical arguments against their atheism. Uh, but it is uh, intriguing and suggestive, perhaps to say the least, uh, that this sort of material, uh, which is really what one wouldn't tend to expect in terms of the other very standard, uh, non-challenging uh, uh, religiosity, uh, that this sort of material appears uh, in her collection. There must be a suspicion that Elizabeth Stillingfleet, like Elizabeth Pepys, uh, must have had her own collection of books, which were kept separate at some point from that of her husband, but that somehow a small number of them 
We came and meshed uh, with those of her husband. Whatever the actual scale of her complete library, <clears throat> we have here a hint of the types of books to which Elizabeth was exposed and the social and personal context and networks in which these items were produced, encountered, bought, read, and exchanged as gifts and tokens of social esteem. But by far the largest number of female-owned books discovered in Marsh's library so far belong to a certain uh, Margaret Usher, and she's the only one who we can definitely tie uh, at this stage uh, to Ireland, or being uh, of Irish uh, birth. Her name appears on 14 separate items published between 1503 and 1687. Obviously, her surname uh, indicates that she was of the prominent Irish family uh, linked to Trinity College and the Anglican Church, but whether she was a member of that by birth or marriage is unclear. Inscriptions on the 14 books and pamphlets demonstrate that she was actively acquiring texts between 1675 and 1682. In other words, these are not passive bequests to her or gifts. She's actively uh, acquiring them. And the surviving books encompass a range of topics, genres, formats and dates. Some were bought new at the time of publication, but others were of some rarity, antiquity and bibliographical curiosity, even when she owned them. The only work of a literary nature uh, was the English edition of the choice letters of Monsieur de Balzac. <coughs> the only polemical work of politics owned by Margaret was a folio copy of Charles I's 1639 large declaration concerning the late tumults in Scotland. Margaret had uh, a number of contemporary works uh, of piety, uh, but uh, her copy of The Learning of Common Assurances, published in London in 1648, and you can see it there on the uh, right, would have provided her with a basic insight into contractual law uh, and the law of property conveyancing in England, uh, but I'd suggest it would have had very limited usefulness in helping her to navigate the complexities of the land settlement in Restoration Ireland. Uh, we know that she had the book, she know that she, she acquired it, uh, but it's often hard to work out uh, what it particularly meant uh, to her. There can be no questioning uh, of the potential utility, though, of Peter Lowe's uh, A Discourse of the Whole Art of Surgery, uh, published in London uh, during the uh, 1600s. 40s. This wasn't a learned treatise for professionals uh, and it was probably intended for a general readership which wanted to know something of first aid and minor medicinal procedures. The vast majority of the books owned by women that I've come across were in English which may be suggestive uh, of something in terms of their uh, educational uh, training. But Margaret Usher had a, a number of intriguing Latin items a 1661 edition of the Statutes of Oxford University, which had been annotated, which looks like it's been annotated in her hand. Uh, a 1687 edition of the public lectures of Johann Christoph Schamburg, a professor of law at Charles University in Prague, which again has some level uh, of annotation. She also had four weighty 16th century tomes, three of which were produced on the continent. Now, these are old, rare and precious books, even when she owned them. The earliest is a very rare edition, there are only four copies surviving, of a legal text called Formulare Advocatorum uh, from 1503. Chronologically, the next of the books uh, is shown here as a Latin book. It's a devotional text from 1509, a Catholic text, uh, Postile Sive Expositio, which has a title page on the 
uh, with a woodcut of uh, Christ standing before the 12 kneeling apostles. There's also a 1526 printing of a hugely popular biblical history first penned uh, by the French theologian Comestor uh, in the 12th century. And finally, uh, Margaret owned, again, a strange thing to find, uh, unusual even among the context of other books owned by women, a 1576 large folio edition of Summa Aurea, uh, a work of Roman and canon law uh, by the Italian lawyer Henry of Segusio, Uh, which was largely written initially in manuscript during the 1250s. Margaret's books give little or nothing away about her family uh, or her social networks. And her annotations in the books might suggest uh, either a learned scholarly bent of mind uh, or a pedantic reader who marked errata lists uh, into her books. We can look at what is not there, we can look at the relative absence of literature, which is unusual, I think, in a British context, uh, or the relative absence uh, of politics, or we can choose to look at the range of interests on display. There is, strangely, uh, Latin. There are also, strangely, a whole range of older texts which are focused on religion uh, and law. And then there are uh, 17th century texts focused on law and medicine. Also intriguing and perhaps suggestive uh, is that she acquires these books seemingly deliberately uh, at different uh, points of time in a relatively short period of time. So these are not things which which are just handed down by accident uh, from male uh, relatives. For the future, uh, I think if this sort of research has a future, uh, it has to really be linked to other research libraries uh, in finding Uh, the commonalities uh, across a whole range of large numbers uh, of books and that means linking to uh, electronic projects. Uh, I'm very clear and very certain that there is much out there that once we begin to look in a systematic way uh, we will find much more uh, information. Just to give you two examples uh, of even at this very uh, early stage uh, of the ways in which uh, in this small library Uh, things can open up into the wider world uh, and ask wider questions. I mentioned uh, earlier on Grace Marsh, her book, uh, 1689 in Marsh's Library. There is at least one other book of hers surviving in another library in the world. And it's here uh, in the San Marino Library, uh, in uh, in the Huntington Library in San Marino uh, in California. And the, the act of dispersal of libraries uh, will be very, and the study of dispersal libraries will be very interesting in terms of looking at what uh, exists uh, there. Margaret Usher is a, an intriguing uh, person as well because at least one of her books uh, survives in Exeter Cathedral Library. But more importantly, uh, all of Margaret Usher's books seem to have been within the collection of John Stern, uh, a clergyman who died in 1745. And when Stern died in 1745, his will. Uh, left half of his uh, printed books to Marsh's library and half, as I'm sure you all know, to a certain other august institution uh, in uh, Dublin. And if the pamphlets are divided uh, at random uh, between Marsh's uh, and uh, Trinity, 
uh, it stands to reason mathematically that there must be uh, a similar number uh, of pamphlets uh, by Margaret Usher or owned by Margaret Usher uh, in that collection, as well as potentially other uh, institutions uh, around the world. So in terms of uh, the future of this, the possibilities of this sort of research, uh, it is something that needs to tie uh, scholars uh, together into networks with librarians and researchers uh, into uh, electronic uh, reconstitution uh, of collections. Uh, but there is far more uh, out there, uh, I think, uh, we're beginning to realise now than we knew in the past. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.